turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to jump back into our study of the Philippians. And today we're just going to look at two verses. They are powerful verses. They're also verses like this whole chapter is one of the chapters between the, 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 the uh, Christ poem that we looked at for two weeks and, and then some of the implications of these verses right here. This is, the, these are, this is one of the chapters of the New Testament that has, spilt, that, that, has, that has caused a lot of ink to be spilt in commentary. And, and of course, even uh, especially Protestants who build their uh, 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 understanding of salvation on Martin Luther's do, uh, uh, Reformation doctrine of justification by faith alone. And of course, that might sound offensive. Uh, they would say, actually, it's Paul's uh, doctrine of justification by faith alone. But of course, it has an impact on the history of our spirituality because of the ministry of Martin Luther. And um, so then we're kind of scared of things like work, uh, faith without works is dead or work out your own salvation. Kind of these red flags go up, this caution uh, ideas go up. And so we're going to jump right in and take a look at that. Why is it that we struggle with that? And, and what are some of the implications that Paul might be communicating? And, and how do we hold on to a healthy posture of recognizing that our salvation isn't up to us and yet owning the fact that if we don't make responsible choices in response to what God has done, then we will alter the quality of the life that we experience. Our life quality can be hindered or uh, encouraged by the way we are willing to posture ourselves before God and the extent to which we go on a journey of owning our responsibility for what God has entrusted to us to work out what he has worked in. I don't think that there's a contradiction between justification by faith and verses like this, but I do think it might mean that we become a little less naive and simplistic about how we acknowledge some of our Christian doctrines because naivety will eventually lead to deep, deep despair and disappointment because it leads us into a false expectation of what this experience is going to be. And the more we can be open and honest about what it looks like, the, the easier it is to navigate. Whenever we were getting ready to have our first child, uh, we, we happened to live in an area of Kansas City at the time that had a really phenomenal hospital, not, unlike anything I've seen before. Now, granted, this was 26 years ago, so I'm sure there's been uh, lots of changes till then, uh, since then, so I'm not to say that this is the only hospital that is this way, but at the time, it was the first time that I toured a hospital where the rooms looked like bedrooms. And so the maternity ward did not feel like a hospital at all. It had hardwood uh, linoleum looking floors and it looked like bedrooms, very comfortable. And, and of course, we were also theologically astute enough to take a parenting class and a baby class on how we were going to be able to raise our daughter in the perfection that previous generations had only dreamed about. And so we were equipped with the theological conviction and we even took classes, learned how I could help Jen uh, concentrate and, and rise above the pain of childbirth into some place where she would be in a Zen-like state until she gave birth to our child. And then we would be dressed in white, all three of us, and we would take pictures together. And um, I memorized my techniques, how to encourage her, how to breathe. And then, you know, 16 hours into chaos, I was angry at the lies that I had been told. And I was amazed at the strength with which Jen could somehow grab these three fingers 
I, see, I still traumatize. I don't wear my wedding ring all the time because at the time she had an ability to squeeze these three fingers together against that wedding ring. I thought they were going to snap several times. Now then, you can also see that part of the problem is I'm very well aware of the discomfort I was in during the childbirthing process. Thus, you can imagine how equipped I was to be there for her, who was in labor for how long? 20-something hours. And um, now, all that to say, the classes we took, the theological classes we took, the tour of the hospital, were they meaningless? No. Were they meaningless in the time of crisis? Pretty much. But what happened was, at the very least, what, it did not eliminate the crisis, it did not eliminate the confusion, but what I recognize is, at least we were aware of the terrain. The terrain did not catch us off guard. We didn't go into it completely naive and unaware. And so, sometimes it's not the fact that our doctrines are in and of themselves to blame or, or that they're weak, the doctrines are there to help us understand the terrain, but we have to understand that getting our theology and understanding right does not then position us to avoid the suffering. It is still there. And so we can't be naive about what we're expecting from simplistic understandings of doctrines. They are there to help empower us to navigate what, as most of us have learned, is a difficult journey. Is there joy? Is there beauty? Is there phenomenal encounters? with the grace of God that are such that in that moment, faith becomes as easy as breathing? Absolutely they are. Can we live a life that increases the possibility that we will have those encounters more? I believe that we can based on those choices that we choose to make. But does it change the fact that life is really hard and that you have dark moments where thoughts enter into your mind that you didn't think healthy human beings had much less mature Christians had? You betcha you're gonna face those dark times. So it is important for us to both have faith and to grow through our understanding of various Christian doctrines, but at the same time, not be naive and understand that no information will ever be a substitute for the moment by moment leaning deeply in on the grace of God for that present moment. And so the more skillful we are at that practice, the more powerful and the more successful our understanding of theology can be as it works out into our lives. So let's take a look at these two simple little verses that are quite powerful. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. So let's take a moment, let's just walk through these two verses for a moment and ponder them, let's reason together. First of all, we're primarily this morning gonna focus the sermon on their story and what it means for our story. We will end with a response for what it could mean for my story, but we're gonna really blend those two narratives together because although it is a unique contextualized story that we're looking at and the instructions given to this particular church at this particular time were unique in, con in the context that they faced themselves, nonetheless, what Paul is gonna do is he's gonna brush against principles that may be specifically applied one way in their context, but they are universally applicable to all of us who follow Christ.
So we're going to kind of look at the connection between those two stories as we walk through it. First and foremost, we have to address this idea where he says, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. We have to remember there are, there are a few exceptions. I think Paul did write that Philemon is written to one particular individual. So in Philemon, if he says you, he's speaking to the individual that he's writing to. But in all the other letters, we have to remember that these are corporate letters. One of the challenges for interpreting and applying the New Testament is we immediately all read it privately. So if we read a, a statement like, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, we read that you as singular and speaking to us as individuals. But we have to remember these letters are communal letters. They're written, they're written to a community, they're written to a group. So what Paul is saying by this one statement is, Working out your salvation actually isn't just an individual project. You have to do that in the context of community. So when he uses you, he's speaking to the plural you. He's saying, community of Philippi, you must work out your salvation in fear and trembling. And what is the assumption that's there that's not real clear is the fact that this, my friends, is a communal call. The reason we commit to a local church is so that we can work out our salvation together. Now, we say words like grow together, which is great, but it is what we're doing. But sometimes we think grow together means get together, learn all the same stuff and have an agreement on it. And now we all know the same stuff together and we're even closer because we agree on more things than we disagree on because we've all learned the same stuff together, right? But really, that's not how growth happens. Growth is a combination of stability and some variables that we control along with a lot of deep, dark work that is chaotic. And the truth is the way we grow together isn't through primarily our mutual increase of homogeny and agreement. We grow together because you guys can be darn hard to love sometimes. And the truth is, oh, I love it, my front row. Speak for yourself, I heard murmured which I was gonna follow up and say, and I can be darn hard to love sometimes as well. And it is in the difficulty of loving, tolerating, forgiving, and affirming one another that we grow. Same is true for difficult seasons in any friendship or relationship or marriages or relationship with your children. All of these darker seasons are absolutely necessary. I mean, the fact of the matter is we like to use words like fertilizer and we pick it up in really clean packaged uh, plastic containers, but we don't think a lot about where the stuff came from that we're handling as we pour it into our vegetable garden to grow food for our nourishment but it is all connected in a cyclical reality. Some of it is beautiful and glorious. Some of it is dark and dank and we don't wanna talk about it, but it is all necessity for growth. And so the same is true if you choose to have the courage to actually not simply attend a church, but begin to invest yourselves, yourself relationally within the context of a community. One of the ways, remember the guiding theme here upwards in the first part of chapter two is adopt the same attitude as that which was in Christ Jesus. One of the ways we adopt the same attitude as Christ is through our participation in the corporate body of Christ in the local church. I have gone through my pseudo philosophical phrase, phase, Actually, I've gone through 
many pseudo-philosophical phases, so much so that it's very embarrassing to track the history of my pseudo-intellectual and philosophical phases. So I get it. You can be saved and follow Jesus without the church. Church, church, church. Why do we hear about church, church, church? It just says, don't forsake the gathering yourselves. So I don't. We have beer and pizza with our buddies who are also Christians every Friday night. I get all of that. I understand it. I understand why we feel this way. But we just have to be honest that if you look at the history of the church and the trajectory of the discipleship program that's revealed in the New Testament, you cannot faithfully follow Christ without being attached to his body. You can't grow that way. Can I be mature when I'm all by myself? Absolutely. The problem is when you all remind me that I'm not as mature as I think that I am. So at that point, I either lean into the lesson or I come up with a reason to demonize you so I can just separate myself from the truth that you're bringing to my soul. And we are all tempted to engage in that false dance and call it discernment and actually think that we've kind of figured something else out that the rest of the entirety of the history of Christianity didn't figure out, which is just don't go to church. It makes following Jesus a lot easier. And there's some truth to that because it is the conflict of community that the Lord uses, the Holy Spirit uses to teach us an accurate assessment of ourselves that leads to an attitude that is supernatural and it's called humility. And we cannot learn humility in isolation. We learn that in the challenges of community. Life in the local church is the first sphere through which we learn to lay down our lives in deference to the needs of others. And it's a really true thing. How, you know what? One of the greatest character lessons that I've seen that God consistently uses through, for, uh, in the lives of anyone who's willing to participate regularly in a, in a, in a, in a faith community. There's one trial that brings us all together that we could unite in our angst, in our despair, in our near Fox's Book of Martyrs passion. And that's to come to church and someone's taking your seat. <laughs> Nothing threatens salvation quite like the sensation and the emotions that you feel when someone, or even worse, someone moved your Bible so they could sit in that seat. Oh boy, that is heresy. Now let's bring in the stake. Um, so it really is true. That is where we learn things about ourselves. That is where if I want to, I can take a moment and step back and say, Holy Spirit, why am I such an angry emotional mess? Because someone took my seat. Maybe the problem isn't I need to find another church. Maybe there's something deeply broken in me that I have all this emotion out of this one little sphere of, of, of geography that I think I can control. And so now that they've taken my last little area of control, I am acting like a petulant child. Holy Spirit, forget about what that says about them and their rudeness, which they clearly are. What does it say about me? And not in the sense where God says, I told you so, what a pathetic petulant child you've been. That's not it. It is God then, there's space for God to enter that place of woundedness 
So maybe what can happen is when someone takes my seat and there's a different reaction in my heart, I know for certain that God, the God who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it until the very end because I see growth there. That's something as silly as that. But that only happens if we press into the discomfort and the messiness of community. Life in the local church is our first field of mission and evangelism. Look around you. If you're struggling to know your destiny, your ministry, your mission, here is your first mission field. This is the place where you need to learn how to share Christ with others. Life in the local church is where we represent Christ to one another. Participation in the local church is nothing less than learning to be Christ to one another. Is that the only place it happens? No, it is not. And if for some kind of bizarre reason you can't get to a local church, does that mean you're abandoned for your growth? No, it isn't. And really, I'm not really even talking. I mean, it, my reference point is this organized thing, but what I'm really just talking about, walking with people in spiritual community. Some people do that, in a group that can, that can build a building that is very convenient for ministry, and that's fine. Other places, this takes place in small groups and living rooms, but it's spiritual community where you're laying down your life and serving one another. I am not saying this structure is the only way that it can happen, but what I am saying is there is something powerful about walking with people in community that is unique and cannot be replaced by any other practice or discipline because this is where we are learning to represent Christ to one another. The first calling to participate in a spiritual community is willing to show up and be Christ to the people around you. That's the first place we're able to do this and on a consistent basis. Participation in the local church is nothing less than learning to be Christ to one another. Mission and evangelism are anemic, if not non-existent, if a community refuses to learn how to tolerate, forgive, serve, and love one another despite our differences and disagreements. But see, that's the part that creates a problem for us, a struggle for us. The local church, my friends, must be messy and imperfect, or it can't do its job in your life. The local church must be messy and challenging or we will not learn to grow in the actual love of Christ. We will just be perpetuating a natural affection for the people that we enjoy being around. If a church wants to expand its mission and its evangelistic influence, it must, must, must become skillful in loving through offense. And that means that the convictions that cause the offense may never be resolved. I'm not talking about resolution where you finally admit to me that you were wrong for offending me. I am talking about walking as adults through complicated relationships and learning how to love one another through our offense. Remember John 13, 35, Jesus's strategy for evangelism through the local church. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If you love one another. We like to be known for who we are by the virtue posts we put on Facebook, by the marches we participate in, by the signs we hold up or the t-shirts we wear. 
But you don't need any of those things if you learn to love well. Because if you learn to love well, there will be no question about who you are and to whom you belong. And you will be a force that actually manifests in a tangible way God's redemption that we talk about. You will be a force of redemption and restoration and reconciliation, not because of your t-shirts, your Facebook posts, or your marches, but because you've been willing to walk with the difficult and love them anyway. This is how the Holy Spirit works deep transformational change in our lives at the soul level. People will know to whom we belong if we learn how to love each other well. Now here's a question for us to ponder. If our Lord reveals that loving one another is the way we reveal our faithfulness to him, why is this such a challenge for us? Why do we look for other schemes and other disciplines and other ways to go about letting people know that we love Jesus rather than the hard work of punkering down and learning to love one another? Well, I think it's pretty evident for all of us. See, we are immature in this level of love because we abandon one another whenever we are offended. And honestly, that's only gotten worse in this culture. Offense used to be something to, something in the realm of tolerance, but now it is not even tolerated anymore. I, I listened to an interview where someone with all seriousness was talking to the interviewee and, interviewee and saying, well, have you ever considered, I mean, how does your viewpoint affect someone else's right to not be offended? Now think about that subtle thing. And she, the interviewer didn't correct that. Not being offended has been elevated to a right in our public discourse. And therefore, if we are offended, we justify judgment, hatred, and abandonment. Christ calls us to build community around his love for others, but we would rather build community around agreement and conformity. In fact, I've been part of this gig for many, many years, and one of the fun parts that I like to do whenever I get to, whenever I get to tour Oz from time to time and peek behind the curtain, and I know you don't wanna hear this, I really love telling you what I see behind there. And so one of the things I'll let you in on is back in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a movement literally called the church growth movement. There were experts, philosophy professors about how to grow church. And one of the things that was common, and, and you could go to, you could go to seminars, pastor, go to seminars called How to Break the 200 Barrier. That was kind of a, a buzz thing there. How do you get your church to move from 200 to 300? And you would go and you would come home with a big, thick notebook full of theories that would help you do this. Most of the theory, I don't think I ever remember a theory that emphasized loving well. They were just strategies. But one of the key elements that they would tell you at those seminars, if you want to grow your church, it must become homogenous. People, organizations of diversity by and large don't experience explosive growth. But the more you have conformity of ideology, conformity of preferences, sometimes conformity of lifestyle cultures or ethnicities, the more your church looks the same, the more people that look like you will be attracted to it and the easier it is to grow a church. No one cries heresy to that sort of thing. 
We just sat in rooms and clapped. I never thought about what a great idea. I think that is 100% anti-Christ. We, I, I, I've told my friends, or when they call and they want little blurbs about my bio, I, this is my favorite one. Artie Favre is the pastor of the slowest growing church in Southern Oklahoma. <laughs> because if you're gonna walk with one another and create room for diversity, you're not gonna grow quickly. And it's gonna be slow, but you know what? You'll become a saint. You'll become a saint on earth because you've allowed the Holy Spirit to move you beyond your offenses and beyond tolerance to affirmation of those who offend you. That is a supernatural work. It's a, it's a difficult humanistic church to move to tolerance, but to move beyond tolerance to affirmation and still be in disagreement, that is something that can only happen if the Holy Spirit has opened up your eyes to see. And that happens only in exposure to community that is diverse in ethnicity, ideology, and all the various categories from which we seek our conformity. When we disagree, we fight rather than seek understanding. And, and honestly, social media has created an enormous setback in human evolution, in my opinion, because it's made us worse human beings when it comes to learning how to listen and understand one another. We fight rather than seek understanding. When we perceive that we are not going to get our way, we simply leave and seek a church that will more closely cater to our preferences. Now, I felt a little uncomfortable when I wrote that because it kind of sounds like maybe it's just a bitter pastor that doesn't want anybody to leave his church. And I get that. It can, I don't think in my heart that's it. I think that it's detrimental that we are in the habit of hopping from one community to the other whenever we get upset or a consumer felt need is not being met. I think that's a mistake. And so, but, but it's so easy, isn't it? So, there are so many to choose from. And the Church of America is Baskin Robbins. I promise you there's a flavor you'll like. And what's great is when you find your flavor, you can then confirm that all the other flavors are inferior. And this is what we do. Now, is it wrong to leave a church? No. You, we all need to be in the community that the Holy Spirit is calling us to, whether or not that community meets our consumer preferences or not. I believe that 100%. And sometimes communities can become unhealthy, maybe even spiritually abusive. And you know what? You need to get out of that community. You don't need to stick it out. You don't need to love them through it. If they're doing damage to you or your family, you should move on. So I am not saying stay at all costs, but what I am saying is it becomes very easy. Most Christians now belong to three or four churches. Just kind of bounce around because you're in a different mood when you wake up on Sunday morning. You know, sometimes I feel like dressing up. Sometimes I feel like a hoodie and basketball shorts. And so we can kind of go with what we feel like. And I'm not saying that that's 100% wrong. We should be aware of other communities. But what I am saying that until we commit to a local community that creates relationships of diversity that challenge our thinking and our assumptions, we will stay immature. We need that challenge in order to be able to blossom and grow. Resistance and offense are not God's signs for us to leave. 
In fact, they may be his invitation for us to grow in love and thus increase the, life, the experience of the life of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Therefore, it requires a posture of fear and trembling, which is another idea that we have to flesh out because the, the revelation of John, remember the revelation of John? There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear, and if you fear, you have not been perfected in love. Well, if that's true, then why does Paul repeat this phrase that we see multiple times throughout the Old Testament, fear and trembling in reference to God? Well, my first most honest answer is, I have no idea. I don't know. Yes, I've gone to the Bible studies. I've learned from the wise men. I've done this a long time. I get a paycheck from it, but I don't know. But I can speculate just a little bit by the clues that we have here in the text. And so what I present to you is just something for your consideration. This is not the only time this phrase fear and trembling is used even in the writings of Paul. And I think that if we look at the way he uses this phrase in other contexts, it might help us understand that this means something more than just being afraid because God's so holy that in our sinfulness, he might lose his temper and strike us down, which is kind of the way people assume that it should be. Or we might just say it's, it's fear like all standing before the Grand Canyon. And I guess I can kind of get on board with that. The problem is the metaphor of it's the fear and all you feel before the Grand Canyon canyon that moment is great but you won't be intimate with the grand canyon because of that fear and all so i'm not saying we don't have a healthy fear and all of respect of god but if it slips over into a kind of posture of fear that keeps god distant rather than inviting us into intimacy then i think it's worth reconsidering our understanding of that idea so paul uses this phrase again in second uh, as well in second corinthians 2 verses one through five. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear and much trembling. So what I want you to see is fear and trembling flows from a self-awareness of weakness. That's a really important element because it's almost routinely ignored when we understanding as some kind of respectful awe and distance before God. This attitude of fear and trembling comes out of a healthy self-awareness of our own weakness. That's what we see right here in this verse. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. You see, my friends, fear and trembling is not fearing the presence of God. On the contrary, fear and trembling is related to the impossibility of the task without the presence and power of God. It is actually that attitude that presses us more deeply into that place where we can find the strength, the life, and the, he- and the power that we need to live lives of responsive obedience to the calling of the Spirit. You cannot overcome your sin, toxicity, and destructive ways of thinking and acting on your own. Can't happen in a vacuum, and it can't happen in isolation. But here's the truth, my friends, that we have to be reminded of. You are never on your own, ever. 
Your identity is defined by Christ in you, the hope of glory, and he's always present. And there is nothing that the presence of Christ cannot nor has not overcome. There is nothing that the presence of Christ cannot nor has not overcome. Now, what are they called to do? Work out their salvation. How? With an attitude of fear and trembling. Why? Because of the confidence that comes from the truth that God is at work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. What does that mean? What does it mean that God is at work with in us? Well, it means on the, on the first observational level, he's at work to will his will into your will. He is, in fact, some of the tension that we are feeling when we go through growth is that tension of learning to let go of our will to embrace the Father's will. And what, what Paul is promising here is that God is actively working to will his will into your will. He is at work to empower the work of his good purpose. Of course, we are, we can say with all boldness, we are responsible to respond with wisdom, humility, and obedience, but the success only flows because of the work that God has done in our lives. That's how we maintain both accountability and humility at the same time. You know, it's kind of like those of you, I see some of you out in the audience, and it looks, into, looks to me like you, you work out. More power to you. Some of you work out big time. When we work out, the, look, there's a visible difference for those who are obsessed with the gym and those who are obsessed with corn dogs. I know because I have the latter obsession. So I get it. But even those of us who, skew the, who, who, who refuse the corn dogs and we go to the gym and we transform our bodies, you didn't create those muscles. All you did was took the gift that you were given and you cultivated it. When we mature and look more like Christ, it's not because of our effort, but our effort is involved in cultivating out what God has worked in. That is the reality. And we all are called to participate in that process. God does the willing and the working so that the Philippians can do the working out. And in the same way, God gives the will and the power to work but they must make the choices that reveal his will. God works and change, works changes in our desires and empower us to do, empowers us to do his will, but we must make the choices that work out what he has worked in. And that comes in the daily grind of life and relationship challenges. That is where all of this talk becomes from theory to practicality and we work it out as we learn how to actively love even in circumstances that bring a challenge to the limits of our love. Because we realize, although there is a limit to our love, there is no limit to our love. What I can do has a stopping point, but what God can do in me and through me knows no boundaries. So there is an unlimitless supply of love for me to be the, condu the, the conduit for, but I've got to make the choices that make me a healthy conduit for that love. The outworking of salvation is a dance. It's a partnership. It is not an equal partnership. 
So those of you who have already started your email, pause it for just a second. It is not an equal partnership, but it is a partnership nonetheless. It's a dance. And God leads the dance, but we respond. And, and the reason why I want to emphasize this point is because you have to understand God is not passive or indifferent to you. He pursues you and he is active in the deepest recesses of your soul, even those that are inaccessible to you in this particular moment. He holds the wisdom. He sees that part of you, both the beauty and the virtue, but he also sees the wound. He sees the reasons why you hide part of yourselves from others in community, and he doesn't rebuke you for it. In fact, I felt the Lord and sometimes say, though your response is unhealthy, it is reasonable. But here's what you need to do in order to get to the place where you don't have to have that reasonable response anymore. God will work with you. He will heal you so that when your behavior changes, it's not because of the greatness of your discipline, but the profundity of the miracle he's worked in your soul. And that is real. That's not going through the motions. That is learning to be yourself healed in the presence of Christ. The outworking of salvation is a dance, but you have to choose whom you will trust in this process. Will you trust yourself? Will you trust your ideology or theology or doctrine? Will you trust yourself to some sort of external authority or authority figure? Or will you choose to entrust yourself to the life of the indwelling Christ who is accessible in the recesses of your own heart? You don't have to seek for him externally. All you have to do is go look where he lives and he will transform your life from the inside out. And he is committed to doing that until that work is complete. So every morning, every moment, make the choice for Christ. There is nothing that the presence of Christ cannot nor has not overcome. There is nothing that the presence of Christ cannot nor has not overcome so as the worship team makes their transition and they create some space for us to ponder and reflect and respond I want to encourage you with some suggestions <laughs> number one don't waste your next offense don't let it go by the wayside like maybe previous offenses have been Become self-aware in the context of the next offense that comes your way, which will likely be within the hour. Don't waste your next offense. Ask the spirit of the indwelling Christ to reveal whatever it is in your heart that is fueling your anger. Now, let me pause and say, I am not saying this as an excuse for the offender they may have toxic behavior that they need to work through. And it might be that we have to say this in a crowd this big. It might be that their toxic behavior is such that it would be unwise and ill-advised for you to persist in loving them up close. It might mean you need to love them from a distance. So I'm not saying, what I am saying is not the offense of abusive speech 
or actions or violence. I'm not talking about that. I am talking about the level of interpersonal offenses that we face on a routine, regular basis. Don't waste those offense. And the next time it stirs up anger, I'm not saying this and attaching a chapter and verse. I'm saying this from a pastoral perspective. I'm saying this as your friend and fellow member of your community. For me, this question has opened up so much growth in my own heart. By just bring, by just, now rarely does it happen in the moment, I'll confess, but reflecting afterwards, if I stop and stop rehearsing the narrative of what that offense revealed about the offender and instead take a moment and say, Holy Spirit, what did my emotional reaction reveal about me? Why did that matter so much? Because nearly 100% of the time, it's connected to an unhealed wound in my own soul. Listen, if you offend me by accusing me of something that I know I'm not guilty of, I just don't care. Tell me that you think maybe I'm becoming a, a, a little obsessive in my time at the gym. Come accuse me of that. I'm not gonna be offended. Come accuse me of having a bad hair day. Not gonna be offended. Something probably more wrong with you than me. But if you suggest to me that fleshly anger was present in one of my sermons, well, now that might offend me. If you suggest to me that maybe I like, lack competence in an area in which I already feel insecure, you're gonna make me very angry. But that anger and that offense is not about you. It is about either the immature or unhealed places in my own soul where I desperately need Jesus to come and make me whole. And oftentimes, I'm not even aware of that place until it's revealed through my offense. So take a moment, ask the indwelling Christ, what might my reaction be revealing about my own woundedness or immaturity? and then enter into what the Bible calls repentance. And repentance is not expressing regret. It is being willing to change your thinking, to change your mind, and that change of thinking will bear the fruit of altered behavior. But it is, repentance is not just trying to alter the surface behavior and still maintain the same mindset. That's a mistake. It'll leave you in the cul-de-sac of sin, guilt, repentance, do a little bit better, sin, guilt, repentance, et cetera, et cetera. And you all are familiar with that neighborhood. Some of us still have real estate there. But I'm saying enter into the possibility that you can think differently, not just about them, not just about God. Maybe you could think differently about yourself. Maybe the reason why you're offended is because what you say to you is way harsher than what they've said to you. And it has stirred up that same place of woundedness. And in fact, until your self-dialogue matches the tone of Jesus, you probably are not complete in your journey of healing. You're still listening to the voice of the adversary, the accuser, and you're still heaping condemnation about yourself. If you drive in the car thinking about how stupid you are, how pathetic you are, how much you don't measure up, how much, this is a common phrase, a really bizarre phrase, I just hate myself. 
my friends, then you've got an invitation to allow the spirit to do a deeper work in you. Because if that's what's going on in your head, then you've yet to become accustomed to listening to the voice of the spirit. Because the voice of the spirit is not the voice of the adversary. It is not a voice of accusation. It is a voice of affirmation and advocacy. And until your thoughts are advocating for yourself, you still haven't grown into entrusting yourself to the presence of the Spirit of God. But sometimes the only way we know that is in our reaction to offense. After you repent, then follow Christ in loving those you might find unlovable in the moment. And please don't leave out the last part. Celebrate the victory that Christ has empowered and secure. Sometimes those moments where you recognize that you are responding way more generous and Christ-like than you ever thought possible, that's the moment to stop and say, thank you, Lord. This is not a one-time sinner's prayer thing. It's a daily moment by moment working out of my salvation and transforming me, not simply into a better Christian because that's easy. That's outer conformity. But when the Spirit makes you a better human being, that's supernatural work. That's a miracle. Happiness to you in your next offense. Would you all stand? Create some space right now because maybe you don't have to wait till your next offense. Maybe you came in here with it on your mind. Use that. Let that be the thing that you encounter the Spirit over. And no, there is no fear in this encouragement because I'm asking you not to go to the voice of accusation, but to run to your advocate.